Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, he's one of the biggest names in magic, and he happens to be from Winnipeg. Magician and illusionist Darcy Oak is with me to talk about how he fell in love with his craft. It was a card trick. Getting his big break on Britain's Got Talent a decade ago, performing for the Queen privately for her 90th birthday and his upcoming tour. He's also got a great story about Prince Harry. One of Vladimir Putin's fiercest critics and most noted opponents has died in a Siberian prison where he'd been serving a 19-year sentence. Alexei Navalny was just 47. He rose to prominence inside and outside the country as a vocal opponent of Putin, calling his United Russia party one of crooks and thieves. He worked to expose corruption. His death is earning condemnation from world leaders, including President Biden and Prime Minister Trudeau. We look at Navalny's legacy and what impact his death could have on fading hopes for change in his homeland. Age is proving to be much more than just a number as President Joe Biden and Donald Trump head towards what looks like another showdown for the White House in November at 81 and 77, respectively. They will be the oldest ever candidates for president, as they were back in 2020. Perceived frailty and recent flubs by Biden and some flubs by Trump have voters telling pollsters they're concerned about their age. Is it justified? But first, a New York judge will have shaved a few years off Trump's life today by slapping him with a $355 million U.S. fine and barring him from serving as an officer or director of any New York corporation or even applying for any loans in the state for three years. They are penalties in a civil case for what the judge described as a scheme by Trump and others to deceive banks and insurers by exaggerating his wealth on annual financial statements. Trump says he'll appeal, of course, but it may mean revealing a lot more about his real finances than we've ever seen before. Donald Trump and his companies have been ordered to pay more than 355 or just about $355 million more uh, with interest and penalties for what a judge described today as a scheme to deceive banks and insurers by exaggerating his wealth on his annual financial statements. The verdict also bars the former U.S. president from serving as an officer or director of any New York corporation or applying for any loans in that state for three years. His sons, Donald Trump Jr. and Eric Trump, who co-run the Trump organization, will be barred from New York businesses for two years as well. Here's New York Attorney General uh, Letitia James, who brought the lawsuit. Today, we are holding Donald Trump accountable. We are holding him accountable for lying, cheating, and a lack of contrition, and for flouting the rules that all of us must play by. Today, justice has been served. Today, we prove that no one is above the law, no matter how rich, powerful, or politically connected you are, everyone must play by the same rules. James sued Trump in 2022 under a state law that authorizes her to investigate persistent fraud in business dealings. The suit accused Trump and his co-defendants of routinely puffing up his financial statements to create an illusion his properties were more valuable than they really were. State lawyers said Trump exaggerated his wealth by as much as $3.6 billion one year. New York Supreme Court Justice Arthur Engeron had already ruled that Trump, his sons, and Trump executives had committed years of business fraud. Now, Trump won't have to pay out the money immediately. As an appeals process goes on, his attorneys, one of his attorneys, called the verdict, quote, a manifest injustice. Here's what Trump himself had to say late today. It's a very sad day for, in my opinion, the country. A New York State judge just ruled that he's crooked as you could get. And a lot of people expected something like this, but not for the amount. The judge, meantime, wrote that the complete lack of remorse shown by Trump and other defendants bordered on pathological. Joining me now with more on this is Eric Talley. He's a law professor at Columbia Law School in New York. Eric, thanks so much for your time tonight. Happy to be here. 
So just, I mean, the number uh, really jumps off the page. That penalty really jumps off the page. Any surprise as to how this was concluded today? Well, a little bit of surprise. I mean, the number that came in was very close to what the Attorney General, Letitia James, had asked for in a prior pleading. And, and that number had come in around $375 million. I think most people thought the judge would come in a little bit south of that. I figured it'd be a little bit further south of that. And I guess on some level, this magnitude signals the gravity of where the judge, you know, sort of figured at the end of the day, after all the antics were over and the smoke had cleared, you know, where, where sort of the, the, the lines of justice sort of came down in this area. He, he also, though, did um, pull back on some other non-monetary sanctions that he had hinted at earlier. So there, notwithstanding the big number here, there's also possibly a little bit more of a win in terms of uh, Donald Trump's ability to continue to do business in New York. Right. I think on the table had been the idea of dissolving the former president's companies, right, which would have been massive. That would have been huge and, and sort of the equivalent of the death penalty from a corporate perspective. And that's now not going to happen, though the order does require uh, Mr. Trump and his adult sons to step back from the management, both from as officers and directors of these companies, at least insofar as they remain New York companies. So uh, so there is a little bit of um, uh, of damage there. But but I think clearly the monetary uh, hit is the biggest. And $355 million, I think, is big for any of us, including Donald Trump. This is not a trivial amount of money. Take us back a bit to what exactly was being alleged here, or at least what they were found guilty of, and what this penalty uh, represents. Because uh, I think most the average person might understand this is a bit like inflating inflating your salary on a mortgage application, right? But it's it seems far. I mean, that's a very basic way of putting it. But this was pretty egregious. Well, yes and no. I think you're correct that the, that it does have that flavor to it with a much larger scale, right? This was uh, years and years of attempts by uh, by the uh, sort of the Trump entities to try to gain loans in which they use Trump properties as security. And of course, you have to make disclosures about the value of those of that collateral, the value of that security, in order to secure your loans. And the the more valuable your security is the lower the rate that your, yours is. And so the, the main allegations is that Mr. Trump and his associates had systematically overinflated the value of the property that he was essentially putting up as collateral for these loans, essentially overstating the square footage, um, mischaracterizing whether the properties were actually occupiable or not, mischaracterizing whether they were rent controlled or not, all in a way to make them look more valuable than they were. And as a result, at least according to the to the um, attorney general's allegations, thereby getting himself a lower interest rate. Now, it's a little bit more complicated than that, because with really, really high valuation uh, uh, you know, loans like these were, there's also a provision that says, hey, don't take my word for it. You should go out and do your own valuation. And those provisions were in here as well. And that had been an argument that the Trump side had made throughout that, you know, that sort of everyone's a big boy, sort of you're, we're all adults here. You go do your own valuation was enough to protect him. And the judge said, no, it wasn't. Just the mischaracterization was enough to create the fraud. Yeah, because the former president was saying today, listen, the banks got their money back. I don't know if that's true or not, but the banks got their money back. So no harm, no, fo no, harm, no foul. It's just business, right? 
Well, it's an interesting thing here. This is uh, the, the, the entire um, use of the statute that was at, at, at play here uh, was kind of an odd one, because usually when you're alle- you know, alleging fraud, there's someone who has been harmed, and there may actually be the plaintiff in the case. And in this case, the banks had not come forward saying, hey, we were defrauded and we lost money because of this. And at least there was a hint that they were repaid. Now, we don't know that for sure. And maybe the banks just don't want to raise a kerfuffle because they want to do a continued business with uh, with Mr. Trump. But we really didn't have an obvious victim in this um, in this um, situation. Maybe the banks did their own investigation. They set the rate that they thought was a fair rate. And then they got repaid. Um, But the allegations that the attorney general made was that, you know, this is a broader harm than just that, that maybe this is a harm against the integrity of the markets. And that may or may not not be true, but I think it probably is worth noting that this isn't sort of the -the run-of-the-mill type of our fraud claim in which there's a clear loser who's sitting there at the table saying, I want my money back. That really wasn't happening here. The New York Supreme Court Justice, uh, who I believe is a Columbia Law graduate, actually, I might, I might be wrong on that, but I think I was reading his bio earlier. Um, he also was pretty pointed about, he figured that this would go on if, he, if there wasn't some sort of penalty, if, much, much as in the E. Jean Carroll case, that there was this dissuasive uh, part of this penalty as well, essentially saying they're showing no remorse, they don't think they've done anything wrong, and to make sure this doesn't happen anymore, here comes the big fine. I think that's probably right. I mean, if you read the latter parts of this judge's opinion, probably the strongest part of the opinion is almost an exasperated sense from this judge that uh, that not only had there been years of repeat mischaracterizations and mis- misstatements by the Trump entities, but even when confront- confronted with some of this evidence in court, uh, it was it was almost like uh, the the defense was well we just were the ostrich that stuck our head in the sand or this is just how everyone does business so this kind of utter lack of contrition about uh, the, the 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 mischaracterization is something that clearly irked this judge I've got to say it probably did not help that uh, that Mr Trump himself decided that he was going to take it upon himself to stand up and deliver some, uh, you know, some Avengers worthy, um, you know, villains monologue at the end of the uh, (laughs) of of the proceedings. You know, it it really did sound more like a stump speech than a closing argument. And I think it kind of exasperated the judge to the point where the judge sort of told the lawyers, can you just get control of your client here? And I'm not so sure that was a great legal calculus on, on behalf of of, of Mr. Trump, uh, you know, it certainly might have fed into a stump speech that he plans to give um, on his campaign trail. And that's kind of a different layer of the of the puzzle here. It's great to have Eric Talley, law professor at Columbia Law School with us uh, this evening. We're talking about the $355 million in penalties that Donald Trump was handed by a New York court today uh, for a scheme described as deceiving banks and insurers by exaggerating his wealth on his annual financial statements. He's also barred from being an officer or director of any New York corporation or applying for any loans in the state for three years. His sons, uh, Don Jr. and Eric, have also been uh, fined in this as well. Um, So, I mean, I guess the big question is now, Eric, if this goes to... If this is appealed, then what happens? Because I gather this is a bit trickier than some of the other things that are out there uh, against against the former president right now. Well, and one of the reasons it's trickier is that uh, simply by winning presidency, Donald Trump is not going to be able to pardon himself against this this set of fines. This is civil liability, and I don't care where you're living, uh, whether it's 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue or some you know somewhere else. 
in Mar-a-Lago, you're going to have to cut the check if, if this actually goes the distance and the appeal is denied. So, um, so he um, is not, you know, th- there may be a bunch of other uh, situations where he might be able to use a self-pardoning power if that works to, uh, to kind of get a get-out-of-jail-free card, but that's not going to help him in this context. Um, you know, his, his appeal is a little bit tricky because I think uh, they've got to decide whether they're going to try to take an appeal up through the state court system or to the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, you know, he is, a, uh, he, he is taken by the more fantastical sort of strategy. So it's possible they go to the U.S. Supreme Court. But, you know, there may be some individualized kind of New York-centered challenges that he might be able to lodge either against this statute that was used itself or at least the application of it in this context. Now, as he does this, he's going to have to post a bond um, right. while the appeal is pending. And uh, while there is some discretion around this bond, a lot of people generally sort of spitball this as sort of coming in at the level of the award itself. So it may be a substantial bond that he would still have to post in order to bring this appeal forward. Right. So we may actually find out what his net worth actually is and how much cash he has lying around, because he's always been very secretive about that over the years. Yeah, unless he decides to borrow money for it and then uh, doesn't disclose the truthful value of his properties. But that would never happen. <laughs> no. <laughs> what I mean, this is an awful lot of money for him. I mean, he's been – these legal cases, I mean, it's hard to follow all of them. There was one, the Georgia case, and it's taken a bit of a weird turn now. And then, of course, there's the E. Jean Carroll one that's under appeal, I believe, as well. But these have been piling up. I mean, at some point, the rubber hits the road for him here. This is an awful lot of money. Yeah, and you know when you think about the Eugene Carroll, uh, uh, you know, case that was big, but that came in at eighty-three million dollars, and here we're here we're talking to something, you know, basically four times that size, and and th- this is really where you are getting to, to real money. It is definitely the case that even um, after controlling for the inflation that has taken place, Donald Trump certainly has the asset value to answer for this type of an award, but it's not all sitting around in $100 bills stacked in some warehouse in Mar-a-Lago. This is in the bathroom you know, really, in Mar-a-Lago. Yeah, yeah. maybe so, maybe in the wall somewhere. But, but, you know, really, this is kind of like, you know, real estate and property and stuff that isn't as liquid as, uh, you know, as cash or some other types of securities. So in order to make this payment, he's going to have to access you know, some sort of capital market, or he's going to have to sell these assets. Well, my guess is he's going to try to borrow against them. This has become even more difficult because part of the judicial order says, oh, by the way, you're not allowed to borrow money from any New York registered bank. And the fact of the matter is that kind of any bank that is, you know, worth its salt that's trying to do any business in North America probably is registered in New York. Now, there are private lenders out there that, that definitely have, have ballooned in the last few years. So he'll have sources, but, um, but, you know, I think it really does just sort of managing this cash flow hit going forward. Even if he ends up winning on appeal, he's going to still have to pony up some cash in the short term in order to bring that appeal forward. And this is not going to be a trivial obstacle for him to surmount. Well, Eric, I appreciate your insight on this tonight. Thank you. Happy to be here.
age is nothing but a number. That's the what the old saying says, but it's shaping up to be a factor in this upcoming U.S. presidential election. If 81-year-old Biden and 77-year-old Trump are indeed the candidates come November, they would break the record, as I mentioned, set four years ago as the oldest candidates in U.S. history. Now, questions have been raised recently about Biden's capacity for the top job. Again, he'd be 86 if he wins and completes that second term. Given not only what's perceived to be some growing physical frailties, but also a tendency to fumble facts. Uh, he recently mixed up current French President Emmanuel Macron with former French President François Mitterrand, who died in 1996, as well as former German, former German Chancellor Angela Merkel with long-ago Chancellor Helmut Kohl, who died in 2017. At one point, he was trying to talk about Egypt, and he said, Mexico, have a listen. And Mitterrand from Germany, I mean, from France, looked at me and said, what, why, how, how long are you back for? Initially, the president of Mexico, Sisi, did not want to open up the gate to allow humanitarian material to get in. Of course, Sisi is the president of Egypt. But, I mean, people make mistakes, right? But there's been a lot of focus on it. Meantime, Trump makes mistakes of his own. Uh, he mistook his only rival for the Republican nomination, Nikki Haley, with former Democratic House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. He called 9-11-7-11. Have a listen. And it's very close to my heart because I was down there and I watch our police and our firemen down on 7-Eleven, down the World Trade Center, right after it came down. You know, they did you know they destroyed all of the information, all of the evidence, everything, because of lots of things. Like Nikki Haley is in charge of security. We offered her 10,000 people. Yeah, that was Nancy Pelosi, by the way. Haley, for her part, says that both men are too old to occupy the White House and should be subjected to cognitive tests. The issue came to a head recently when special counsel Robert Hur, a Republican former U.S. attorney in Maryland during Trump's administration, said in a report on Biden's handling of classified documents that uh, Biden was a well-meaning elderly man with a poor memory who was not able to recall to investigators when his son, Bo Biden, had died. The president was not happy about that one. I know there's some attention paid to some language in the report about my recollection of events. There's even reference that I don't remember when my son died. How in the hell dare he raise that? Frankly, when I was asked the question, I thought to myself, it wasn't any of their damn business. I'm well-meaning, and I'm an elderly man, and I know what the hell I'm doing. I've been president, and I put this country back on its feet. I don't need his recommendation. It's How totally bad out. is your memory, and can you continue as president? My memory is so bad, I let you speak. <laughs> there you have it. It's become a touchy issue, especially for Democrats, but there is no denying that it is on the mind of American voters. Some 78% of respondents in a recent Reuters Ipsos poll, including 71% of Democrats, think that Biden is too old to work in government. Trump's, Trump suffers from a bit less skepticism uh, about his age. 53% of respondents consider him too old for government work. We wanted to put this, though, to someone who knows these issues. Are these concerns well-founded, or are they simply ageism being turned into a political weapon? S.J. Olshansky is a professor of public health at the University of Illinois at Chicago and a research associate at the Center on Aging at the University of Chicago. He's also spent years looking into the lifespans of presidents, and he joins me now. Thanks so much for your time. Sure. Thanks for having me. This has been, it was interesting because I was looking back at, at some stuff you'd written back in 2020 when this was already had become an issue when these were men who were four years younger than they are now. Uh, any surprise that it's resurfaced once again? No, <laughs> no. I'm not surprised <laughs> at all. Know. Look, I've been writing a, on this issue actually since 2011 when I published an article on the longevity of all the U.S. presidents right. you know, that affected George Washington. 
you know, anytime an opponent has an opportunity to weaponize anything, including age, they will do so. And goodness, we've got uh, the oldest president and the previous oldest president running against each other. So what do you think is going to happen? Of course, they're going to use it and weaponize it. As someone who's an expert on aging, I mean, I think I understand. I mean, the politics of it is clear. Even the perceptions of it are pretty clear. How do you see it from from where you sit, given your expertise? Well, I see it as incredibly unfair. Uh, I mean, there's all of this discussion about tripping and making verbal mistakes. Uh, You know, every time one of the candidates trips or makes a verbal error, I get a phone call. Do we now have enough evidence to indicate that he's cognitively impaired or he's physically impaired? And I'm going, seriously, um, have you ever given a speech? Have you ever been out in public? We all make mistakes. Um, And, you know, the probability does increase the older we get. There's no question about that, but none of us is perfect and we're we're going to make mistakes. There's no evidence of cognitive decline in either of them. It look, if you don't like what they say, it's not because of how old they are. It's because you don't like what they say. It's been interesting, I think, with uh well, we can talk about President Biden specifically because I think the attention's been more focused on him of late. It's 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 interesting when he makes his mistakes, and yet because he's president, and I was thinking back to all those images of what Barack Obama looked like when he went in in 20, 2008, what he looked like when he left in 2016, same with George W. Bush. Uh, you know, this has been the aging of the presidency is something that we already had sort of baked into our psyches to begin with, and I think it's even more pronounced with Joe Biden. So we're really watching him all the time, and he Anytime he does anything, as you noted, as you just mentioned, people are quick to judge. Well, I, you know, I hate to tell you this, but you take a picture of anyone uh, eight years <laughs> yes. apart, they are going to look older after eight years. <laughs> and this applies to people, whether they're 50 or 80. So join the club. This is going to happen to virtually uh, all of us as we get older. You know, fortunately, we don't die from gray hair and wrinkled skin or lack of hair in my case. And so those aren't the things that kill us. So it's it's sort of ridiculous to raise these issues as it's been been raised. And it's really patently unfair to the candidates. Uh, You know, when I think of running for president here in the United States, the image I get in my mind right now from the way the media is treating this is I'm imagining two candidates on treadmills next to each other, you know, with all kinds of wires going on in every part of their body and you know, that's what running for president is going to mean. It seems like we're more interested in their bowel movements and blood pressure than we are in their policies. Yeah. Uh, so we're zeroing in on absolutely the wrong thing. Um, yeah, there's no evidence that there's any significant problems. Actually, to the contrary, we've evaluated their medical records in detail. And this includes uh, an evaluation by both survival analysts like myself who do this for a living and board certified geriatricians who examine medical records for a living. And we've all come to the exact same conclusion. Both candidates, both Biden and Trump, are exhibiting signals and signs that they might be super agers. And if you don't, if, if you if you're a part of a political camp who doesn't like either one of them or doesn't like one or the other, that could be uh, pretty bad news. If you if you look at the way the media is treated, and I think this has been pointed out by critics again and again and again. The media reports is by Biden makes gaff. Is he too old on Monday? They do it again on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. They say the same thing about Trump. And then all of a sudden on Friday, they're like new poll shows, you know, people concerned about this. Well, of course, they're concerned about it. Does it anger you that, that this seems to be? Uh, you know, I don't want to criticize my own profession, but it is low-hanging fruit, isn't it? Well, it's classic ageism. I mean, we're seeing 
a portrayal of older people that is patently wrong. If you have any sense at all of what's going on in the world of aging in Canada, United States, or any other developed country, aging is not what it used to be. People are making it out to older ages today, very healthy. You know, even past the age of 85, about 25% of the population is making it out exceptionally healthy, both in mind and body. 50% are doing extremely well. So aging is not what it used to be. It's not people bending over walkers, um, problems with their back and all kinds of diseases and disorders. You now have people in their 60s, 70s, 80s and older that are spending most of their time talking about their workout routine or what book they've written or second job that they've taken at later ages. So aging is not what it used to be. And I really dislike this portrayal. Look, I'll be honest with you. I'm 69. I'm going to be 70 next week. When I was younger, I was told or at least had a particular view of what aging was going to be like and what you know, 70 was going to be like. This is not it. This is not what I was told. I'm loving it out here. And many of the people that I work with are way out here in our 70s and 80s. I, I don't, I, honestly, I still consider myself middle-aged. When I had this discussion with my father, who was 95 years old, uh, it was a year before he actually died at 96, but in 95, he said, I look in the mirror and I don't know who that guy is, but inside I'm the same 40 year old person that I was, you know, decades ago. And he said, I just don't know this body, but inside I'm the same person. I guess we, we are because life expectancy has changed quite radically, you know, especially considering in the, in the grand scheme of things quite radically in the past couple of decades, when I was growing up, I mean, neither of my grandfathers made it past 70. We were used to people retiring and passing. That's kind of how it happened. So I think we had a concept in our mind that 65 was sort of, not only was at the end of your work life, it was basically, you know, near the end of it all. And now we have this completely different reality. Plus I was interviewing someone else about aging a few weeks ago. We don't all age the same way. We all reel in the years the same way, but we don't all age the same way. Yeah, we age chronologically at the same rate, of course. We count time the same way. But biologically, you're right, we age at different rates. The example I like to use is, you know, going to your high school reunion. If you want to see an example of variation in rate of aging, that's the best way to see it. Because you see some people over on the left that look like they're 80, uh, and some people on the right that look like they're 30. And it's and it's not just makeup and plastic surgery that's going on here. It's basic uh, variation in the rate of aging. And so you can, you know, we can routinely see people making it out into their 80s and 90s. And look, truth be told, these folks that make it out to these older ages have something that younger people don't have. They have crystallized intelligence. They have uh, wisdom. They have wit. Well, almost always they have wit. Not everyone (laughs) makes it out there with wit, but, but they have something that we all aspire to at younger ages. And it's amazing that we're finding a way to be negative about this very positive phenomenon that we all really want in the end, because we all want to live a long life and we all want to live a healthy life. And when people make it out there to later ages and they are healthy, we shouldn't be restricting them. We should be opening the door to these folks to do whatever they want. They're they're an extraordinarily valuable resource to themselves, to society. They often want to work. They have the same goals and aspirations as younger people. So, you know, these the people people that make it out to older ages should be valued, not discarded. S.J. Olshansky is with us this half hour. He is a professor of public health at the University of Illinois at Chicago. He's also with the Center on Aging at the University of Chicago. So, so there's been a lot of focus on these 
on these sort of forget, well, call them forgetful moments. I mean, I, I don't know if many Americans would be able to know the difference between François Macron and François uh, Mitterrand in the, in the same one, or Angela Merkel and Helmut Kohl. But regardless, they've been pointing out these little flubs that, that Biden sometimes makes. What should we make of them? Because I guess when you play them back and back, back and over and over again in the media, they, they create an impression of someone who's kind of not all with it, right? I mean, unfortunately, that's that's kind of the point. Yeah. So Biden makes them all the time. It's not just, you know, infrequently, it's frequently. But he's been doing this since he was a kid. Right. Uh, so there's really nothing different. For those who, who haven't had any experience public speaking, in public speaking, you have to realize how difficult this is. Look, I do this for a living. I give keynote speeches uh, all over the world. You know, you get you are influenced by international travel. You get tired you know, presidents, you know, they're not just doing one thing, they're juggling a dozen or more things all at once. So the fact that they make mistakes is expected. And if you play them over and over again, and, and you know, consecutively, it seems as though they're losing it. Um, but no, you're just seeing normal age-related mistakes. And, and by the way, I would challenge anyone listening to follow the rigor and the routine of either Trump or Biden just for a day, just to see how they can handle that. Now, imagine doing that seven days a week, 24-7, with a camera and a microphone in front of you. I guarantee you they're going to pick up every single mistake that you make. And in all likelihood, most of us are going to make a whole lot more mistakes than them. So the moment somebody listening is perfect, then I think they can comment. Trump denies it you know, as he's wont to do, Trump just says, yeah, there's no way I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a genius and I'm, I'm all there. Uh, Biden got angry last week. Is that the right, is that the right approach just to say, because I think he pointed out what you were just talking about. Like I've got a lot on my plate and I'm doing a good job. So get off my back. I don't, I don't blame him for getting angry um, quite frankly, because it came about in a very awkward way in that her report. Yeah. Um, And here you've got somebody who's not an expert in uh, geriatric medicine, essentially drawing a conclusion about the cognitive functioning of the president of the United States. So I don't I don't uh, fault him for getting angry. However, I actually don't think that that's the best way to deal with. In my view, honestly, I think there's only one way to deal with this issue of ageism, and that's with humor. You know, I think we've he's seen tried that. He's tried that too, right? He's tried it. I think he really needs to work a bit harder on dealing with it. Look, he's not going to grow any younger. Um, He's not going to stop making flubs. He's not going to stop tripping uh, because it's going to happen to to all of us. So he's got to acknowledge it, in my view, and he's got to deal with it, it with some level of humor every single time. And actually, probably sort of warn the public, yeah, you know, you can expect more flubs from me. I do it. I do it effectively for a living. Um, it doesn't mean that my decision-making is altered uh, in any way. I mean, Ronald Reagan dealt with this incredibly effectively in an election debate with Walter Mondale, where he said, yeah, I won't hold your youth and inexperience against you. Yeah, that, was, um, that was a great line. It, it was 1984, brilliant. it feels like that's 40 years ago, my goodness. Yeah, it was yeah. brilliant. And which, by the way, tells you that this issue is not going away. It's been no. around for a long time. So uh, I would prefer that he deal with it with humor. It's the only way because uh, anger isn't going to work. No one's going to like that. Hopefully he'll he'll take that approach. Maybe then if you flip this, because you were talking earlier about the problem with this being, being used, weaponized in such a negative way, maybe this is one of those opportunities. I've thought of it this way in the past to actually have a constructive 
debate about aging, period, because our parents are getting older. They're no less sharp, most of us. I'm a Gen Xer. My parents are boomers, probably a little bit older than you, but in sort of the same generation, um, that this is a nice time to actually have this conversation about aging and ageism. Well, so we, you know, I used to be a board member of the American Federation for Aging Research up until last December, and we just held a news conference, uh, a, a sort of a press event yesterday, where we dealt, tried to deal with this in an open an honest way. We had myself, who I've studied this for decades now, uh, my colleague, who's a geriatrician, Brad Wilcox. And then we had Ben Barnes, who's an 85-year-old former politician who is busier now than he's ever been in his life in his, in his work as sort of a classic illustration of how we should be thinking about aging today and in the future. And that's really in a much more constructive way. So yeah, having this, this, um, openly discussed. I mean, that's what we're doing today. Having this openly discussed and debated, I think, is important. But really getting both the media and the general public to understand that aging is not what it what it used to be. And we really need to look at aging in a much more favorable light. We, we all want to make it out here. And we all want to make it out here healthy. And when we do, we don't want people making fun of us. We don't want people closing doors. Uh, we want them opening doors, enable older individuals to do what they want, uh, to make contributions to, to society. Do not discard the mo one of the most valuable resources that we have in our country. Well, I appreciate your time today. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. That was the sound of Russian nationals protesting in Argentina tonight. There's been widespread condemnation today of Vladimir Putin after it was announced that one of his toughest and most effective critics and opponents had died in jail. Russian, Russia's prison agency says Alexei Navalny died today at the Arctic penal colony where he was serving a 19-year sentence. He was just 47. He's been in jail since January of 2021. When he returned to Moscow, even though people asked him not to. He returned to Moscow after recovering in Germany from a nerve agent poisoning he blamed on the Kremlin. Now, Navalny, if you remember back, had been one of Putin's, certainly his most prominent opponent, not just in Russia, but right around the world. He'd gained traction um, calling by calling Putin's United Russia Party one of crooks and thieves. He worked to expose corruption in particular. He really, that was really how he tried to expose um, the Putin regime, not just as one that is, you know, uh, someone quick to put down opponents and uh, crush human rights, but also one that is simply thieving the country, robbing the country of its wealth, which, of course, is exactly what's been happening for many years now. It is, not, if nothing, a kleptocracy first and foremost uh, in Russia. U.S. President Joe Biden says Navalny bravely stood up to corruption in his homeland. Putin had him poisoned. He had him arrested. And I'm prosecuted for fabricated crimes. He sentenced him to prison. He was held in isolation. Even all that didn't stop him from calling out Putin's lies. Even in prison, he was a powerful voice for the truth, which is kind of amazing when you think about it. Prime Minister Trudeau offered his condolences today to the opposition leader's family and all those who are championing the pursuit of justice. Trudeau described Navalny as someone who was standing up with, the, with extraordinary courage for a better future for Russia and Russians. Alexei Navalny has been, uh, had been an extraordinary fighter for uh, human rights, uh, for democracy, and someone who was standing up for the Russian people, standing up with extraordinary courage. Uh, for uh, a better future for Russia and for Russians. Uh, and uh, we know how much that scares and continues to scare Vladimir Putin. 
Now, Navalny had actually made a court appearance via video link only yesterday, even apparently joking with the judge. Have a listen. There he is. I mean, I can't translate that for you, but you can tell. I mean, he's he's joking in that in that clip of voice again from the grave today. There is no official cause of death yet. Um, it's hard to see exactly what's coming out of it. I mean, natural causes is what the Russians are saying for the time being. Navalny's wife was at a security conference in Munich today alongside a lot of other people who know a lot about this issue. She went ahead with a public appearance saying her late husband would have wanted her to soldier on. Yulia Navalny said that she wanted Putin and everyone around Putin, Putin's friends, his government, to know that they will bear responsibility for what they've done to her country, her family, and her husband. And that day will come very soon. But Putin's been getting rid of his enemies, real and perceived, inside Russia and out for decades now. Will Navalny's death change anything? Joining me now is Ian Garner. He's a scholar of Russian war propaganda. His book is called Stalingrad Lives, Stories of Combat and Survival and the Z Generation into the Heart of Russia's Fascist Youth. Ian, thank you so much. Welcome back. Thanks for having me. You know, I saw the. I woke up to this news this morning. Sadly, I can't say I was surprised to, to read that Alexei Navalny had died in prison. I sort of think we all expected it to happen at some point, but but certainly it's a reminder. It's a reminder of who Navalny was and and the threat that he posed. Well, absolutely. You and I Ben, have had a number of conversations over the last couple of years that have all been around shocking events: the invasion itself, Yevgeny Prigozhin's death last year. And yet this was the most thoroughly predictable political event of probably the last few years in Russia. We all expected, Navalny himself expected, that once you return to Russia, this was the fate that awaited him. When you look at, I mean, the why now, it, it, perhaps we don't know the cause of death, but the moment it seemed like he was destined to die given where he was being transferred to prison-wise. I mean, he was in essentially what we knew if you read Russian lit back in the... If you read One Day in the Life of Ivan Desenovich, he was in maybe not that form of a camp, but he was in Siberia. Absolutely. The the colony, the, the prison colonies where prisoners like Navalny are being held are absolutely brutal. The conditions are inhumane for any prisoner, and these are hardened criminals. But for Navalny, the state devised a diet of rather special treatment based around sleep deprivation, leaving the lights on his cell constantly turned on, depriving him of rations, keeping him in solitary confinement, constantly piping in political propaganda so that this poor guy couldn't sleep. And so his his body very clearly, when we saw it over the last few years, was becoming increasingly weak. He looked in terrible health. And we'd heard stories that his kidneys were potentially failing over the last few months. And so it may be that the why now is, well, maybe it was just his time to go. And of course, he wouldn't have been provided with proper medical treatment. On the other hand, it is a huge coincidence that the presidential election is just a month away, that the only opposition candidate who was attempting to stand on the ballot was just barred from being part of the election. That's Boris Nadezhdin as of last week. And that, of course, just generally across the board, we've seen increasing repression of anyone even mildly tilting towards opposition on any side in Russia over the last couple of years. When, if, to remind listeners about who Alexei Navalny 
is, was. Um, why is it that he posed such a threat? I mean, Putin would often dismiss him. But why is it that he was seen as threatening within Putin and his entourage? So if we go back to the early 2010s, when Putin's regime was ailing, the buoyant economy of the early 2000s was dead, thanks to the global financial crisis. When the Arab Spring was seeing protests crop up all around the Middle East, when Putin had seen numerous revolutions and rebellions in countries bordering Russia, Navalny came in and he was young and he, he was only 47 when he died. So we're still talking about a relatively young man. He was in his mid-30s. He was a lawyer and he took to LiveJournal, which is a popular blogging platform. He took to Facebook and he spoke to young people using the language of young people on the platforms where young people were and said, I don't care who I work with. I don't care what you believe. We all have to come together and kick Putin out. And that was his great achievement as an opposition politician to find ways of uniting people that would normally never have worked together and convince them, let's put aside our differences, let's just get rid of Putin and then see what happens. And that success, of course, breeds the contempt that we saw towards him for years after that. Well, absolutely. For a long time, Putin more or less didn't acknowledge Navalny's existence. He refused to say his name. When he did refer to Navalny, he simply called him that blogger, you know, diminishing his reputation, just he's some trifling little blogger. And of course, Navalny, who was a very witty guy, fired back in return and christened this nickname for Putin as being the old man in the bunker, this sort of cranky old grandfather figure who was leading Russia towards destruction. Which indeed, he I mean, if you look at it objectively, perhaps he was. What's interesting to have watched over the past five, six years, though, is is like so many of, of, of Putin's opponents, he was he was essentially neutralized. And then when he he was in exile, then he came back, then he was arrested and essentially disappeared. So once again, a Putin rival finds himself in the crosshairs. And now, of course, like so many Putin rivals, dead. Well, absolutely. And, and ultimately, the very sad part of Navalny's story is, as we speak, he hasn't managed to create a united opposition in Russia. He's, of course, been sidelined and now killed. The other leaders that were emerging and working with him at that time in the early 2010s are either dead, like Boris Nemtsov, who was shot in Moscow in the mid-2010s, or in jail, like Ilya Yashin, who was, who was jailed at the end of 2022. And it's really hard to see where the Russian opposition goes from here. They don't have a message of unity to oppose Putin. They don't have strong narratives about what Russia might become after Putin or if Putin is overthrown. And the Putin government this whole time has been working on more and more effective means of both enticing 
and bullying people away from opposition narratives. Ian Garner is with us this half hour, a scholar of Russian war propaganda. We're talking about the death of Alexei Navalny today, the the chief, really the main uh, opposition face and voice in Russia for quite some time. Uh, he was jailed a few years back after he returned to Russia and he died in a penal colony in Siberia. Today, it appears we don't know the cause of death today. Uh, Ian, his wife was in, was in, happened to be in Switzerland today. There was a gathering of a lot of people who are very influential on the outside of the this debate. Um, there had been, Putin had been warned of potential consequences should Navalny uh, die. Uh, and one wonders what consequences there possibly could be. Well, you wonder, and I wonder, along with everybody else, it is hard to see, given the level of sanctions that have been imposed on Russia already, and given the generally waning support in the West, and in particular from the US Senate and House for providing more aid to Ukraine and hoping to somehow overthrow Putin or diminish Putin's power by pressure coming out of Kiev, it is hard to see what the West really could do in response to this. With that said, one of Navalny's greater achievements over the last decade has been to create a very effective lobbying and support network in Western countries, in Western Europe, in Washington, D.C. And one wonders whether the connections his team have built up with Western politicians might lead to some more concrete action, as opposed to some of the fine words, but not usually accompanied by much uh, much in the way of deeds that we've seen after the jailing or beatings or even killings of other opposition leaders in the last few years. I noticed already today that any signs of sort of mourning on the streets of Russia, including in the capital of Moscow, were being were being put down very quickly. Well, absolutely. The, the regime would have known that this would be expected. They're rolling out the standard playbook. It, it looks like a good number of Russians have come out to protest and simply mark Navalny's passing. We're not talking about mass protests. We're we're talking about people in numbering in the hundreds, maybe the thousands, but certainly not the tens or hundreds of thousands that you would need to build any significant opposition force. And I don't see, based on the way that past protests have gone in Russia, in particular in the last couple of years, that any any of these protests will catch on and turn into a bigger movement. Navalny, especially over the last year or two, has actually dropped in prominence, dropped in popularity among, among the Russian public. And I don't think this will be the turning point that will lead to wide-scale revolt. It comes at an interesting time in the West, especially in America, where, of course, we've just seen Tucker Carlson over there interviewing, not only interviewing Vladimir Putin in quite a uh, quite a complimentary interview, but also sort of lionizing Russia itself. It's come at a time where we've seen this odd admiration of Russia suddenly in, in parts of, of the political spectrum on either side, extremes of the political spectrum in the West. Um, does Navalny's death do anything to dent that sudden admiration for what is, I mean, let's be honest, a, a murderous and brutal regime that if anyone in America or in Canada, for that matter, who spouts about freedom and being able to be voice your opinion would, uh, wouldn't last very long in Putin's Russia? I, I don't think this will make a huge difference. Um, it seems like the dividing lines in Western politics around opinions on Russia and Ukraine more generally are now so clearly drawn that it is hard to imagine that many will change their minds over 
an event that we all had probably factored into our calculations. Everybody knew that Navalny was being tortured. Everybody knew that Navalny was going to die, whether it was today or whether it was in a month or a year. It is a reminder, though, I think, of what Ukraine is fighting for. To some extent, what Ukrainians are fighting and dying for is not to be under that system. Absolutely. It's, it's very clear. And this is already happening in the occupied territories in the east of Ukraine. It has happened in Crimea over the last decade since that territory was annexed by Russia. Russia is rolling out this oppression playbook. It is jailing its opponents. It is killing its opponents. It is disappearing its opponents. People simply vanish. It is propagandizing heavily among the native population. It is bringing in Russian settlers from Moscow to ensure the right messages are heard and that people toe the line. And if Ukraine loses the war, Ukrainians are very clear in their understanding that what awaits them is not a transition to a sort of fairy tale Moscow that maybe Tucker Carlson has been portraying over the last week or so. It will be a movement towards a very scary and very dark place where saying the wrong thing or sometimes even saying nothing at all can lead to death. Ian, as always, thank you. Thanks for having me. Do you remember the first time you ever saw a magic trick? My earliest memory of one is a dad's friend grabbing a pack of cards, asking me to pick one, then putting it back in the deck. He pounded on the deck and then revealed my card at the bottom. And I thought this was, I thought I'd witnessed a miracle, not a sleight of hand. So afterwards, I remember distinctly spending weeks, maybe months, maybe longer, trying to repeat the action without the sleight of hand, just punching down on the deck, thinking somehow the card would appear at the bottom. It never did, obviously, and I didn't have, I guess I should have known right there and then that I didn't have what it took to be a magician. Oddly enough, it was a card trick of sorts that led my next guest to fall in love with magic as well, although he went on to become a roaring success, a world-renowned magician and illusionist. Darcy Oak actually got his big break in Britain while I was living there. I remember them saying there is this Canadian magician who's doing so well on this show called Britain's Got Talent, which Simon Cowell was part of. And it was a huge deal. Of course, he was Canadian, so I took interest in it and watched it. He wound up not winning, but finishing in the top five. He was one of Simon's favorites. And the show had a cumulative audience of something like 200 million people. Here's a bit of one of his performances on that show a decade ago. They say that time is of the essence. That's especially true tonight. There you have it, Scott Oak. He was uh, Darcy Oak, I should say. He was just 26 at the time. He'd been working for years to build his craft by the time he got that opportunity. He was born and raised in Winnipeg. And I say Scott Oak because his dad is the well-known sports broadcaster, Scott Oak. Um, but, you know, it's a tough business to earn, a rec to earn recognition in. Well, since then, since that performance, or since that run on Britain's Got Talent, he's performed for the Queen, toured the world, been on America's Got Talent, the Champions Edition, where he levitated Judge Heidi Klum. Now he's hitting the road again in Ontario later this month, and it's my great pleasure to welcome uh, illusionist and magician Darcy Oak to the show. Darcy, thanks. Hey, thank you for having me. I was, just, I was saying that I happened to be living in London uh, as working there as a correspondent when you appeared on Britain's Got Talent. Of course, right away I noticed it because, of course, A, you're Canadian. B, then all of a sudden the connection to your dad was made. I think anyone who's – any kid who's grown up in this country probably knows who your dad is at some point. <laughs> um, and I'm like, wow. But 
I don't think anyone in Canada ever quite grasped just what a big deal that was and how what a life-changing moment that was when when you did so well on the 2014 uh, edition of that show. Yeah, it, well, it completely changed my life. And literally, like I went into that with zero sort of expectation. I went into that just hoping I wasn't going to get buzzed off the show. Right? <laughs> like I was just, uh, I just, it was just one of those things where it was just, you know, I don't want to say gamble, but like I didn't know what I was walking into and I was young and just what opportunity can I take and, and all of that. So when that presented itself and then it unfolded that way, it was just a dream come true. And like, and like you said, like it's so concentrated in London, like there's essentially 50 million people living on more or less an island, right? And uh, it's so busy in the hustle and bustle and that show is so popular that the amount of eyes that it got on it just opened up a whole new world to me. And, uh, you know, I've been working ever since. Yeah. I mean, I rewatched it and it reminded me because I'd seen it. I think I'd seen it at least one of your performances in real time watching it. Um, it reminded me of how good it was, though. I wonder if you ever look back and think, wow, because it was the way you incorporated storytelling and video and there was just a lot going on. And I don't think, especially if you grew up in the 70s and the 80s, I don't think we had seen illusion and magic done quite that way with so much story, such a storytelling element. And that's always sort of the approach that I try to take with it is it's, it's not, it's not about the trick, if you will. That's the, that's the medium for the other thing you're trying to communicate. And for me, it's all about how do you make them feel? And like being a magician, it's inherently just like, ah, I know something you don't know. You don't know the secret, ha 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 kind of thing. Right. And it was never about that for me. It's always about like how it makes the person feel when they watch it or when they see it. And, you know, the live show or performing live is always my bread and butter. Like that's what I love to do, you know, get people into a room and, and when you fool them and make them feel a certain type of way, it's such a powerful experience. And so on, when Britain's Got Talent happened, the, the biggest thing for me during that was to not go on there and try to do some brand new thing that I'd concocted in my mind and be like, it would be so cool if this happened. Because I had heard stories of people that go on there and try a brand new bit because they think it's going to be amazing. And in the magic world, it takes a really, really long time to, to develop a bit into what we call your A material. It's not just like you go out there, you try it, that was great, and it's done. It's like there's so much nuance to it and so much psychology behind it. And uh, it's these ideas really need to be nurtured, right? So my approach going on that show was I'm going to do the beginning, the middle, and end of my current show. And that's exactly what I did. And, and I think it, it, it paid off with not because, you know, like I said, there's so much that goes into it. And there's so many variables in a show like that, that it was important for me to just stick to what I know and do it the best I possibly can. Yeah. And so much timing, too, because I think when one thinks back, I mean, I grew up watching Doug Henning and no offense to Doug Henning. He was a fantastic magician. But it feels like what you do for each of those performances would involve so much more planning and and, and sort of conceptualizing. And you're right. The trick is a, is essentially the crescendo. But there's yeah. a whole orchestra playing at the same time. Yeah, exactly. And the, and the thing, it's almost a, a backwards art form, we say, like in any other art form. The, the performer, if it's a singer, for example, like they spend their whole life practicing to be the best singer. They step out on stage and they display their skill, right? Whereas magic is the only art form that you practice so much to hide your skill. You don't want people to see the dirty work and to see what happens. So everything appears to be seamless and, and like you can just do it. But in reality, there's like 800 people doing a million different things and it's all like a 
precision timed and it's uh yeah it's it's funny too because when you bring uh you know like a new say tech person into the mix a lot of them get like very stressed out we're like this isn't like a music show where we just you know the lights on the drum kit the drummer plays it's like this all leads up to this one thing but everything leading up to that is hiding this thing and it's you know it's it's high stakes it is. It is because the moment you break that illusion, you're, you've lost them, right? And that's a big, I mean, I, I know it's the same for a singer if they hit a false note, but, you know, practice makes perfect in that sense, where I guess in your sense, you probably have to have a lot of faith, not only in your own abilities, but in the people around you to carry out what it is you're trying to achieve. Completely. And that, and that's a, that's a big thing too, because like anyone sort of within the magic and illusion world is, uh, you know, essentially you control your your surroundings as much as you possibly can to make sure people see a certain thing or feel a certain way and a lot of that responsibility does fall on sort of the crew people that are involved in the show and yeah you have to you have to you know create that dynamic where everybody understands completely what the goal is and what we're trying to hide and what we're trying to show where uh yeah it's a, it's a it's a it's a well orchestrated song and dance if you will it is and it and it certainly i mean I was curious to know in the aftermath, uh, and this goes back a little while, but in the aftermath of Britain's Got Talent, um, you obviously were, came back to Canada and you've done a lot of work here as well. And you will be, part of the reason we're speaking is you'll be performing in Markham uh, beginning on Leap Year Day, the 29th, right through early yeah, March. Crazy. That first weekend. <laughs> yeah, Isn't that fun to see the two? I, I, was, I had to do a double take. I'm like, Thursday, the 29th of February. I, know, I thought uh, that was a typo at first too. Yeah, like, oh, exactly. Oh, it is. It is. Um, you performed for the Queen. That yeah. must have been interesting. It was that was wild. So it was her 90th birthday inside Windsor Castle, and it was her and like 80 direct members of the royal family. So all of them were there, and it was it was Windsor Castle was not at all what I thought it was. It's so I guess a big thing like it's so crazy to see the history and all the stuff in there. But I guess a big thing is when other you know people from other countries come to to meet the Queen or visit the Queen. A big thing is like they I guess bring her like ancient weapons. They do like, something like I don't know. If that's <laughs> no, I no wonder I no wonder my no, my visit was such a terrible. terrible yeah. <laughs> yeah, but you walk around there and there's like an old like Japanese samurai suit from like the turn of the century, and there's all this just artifacts and crazy, crazy stuff that it was just mind blowing. And then that show, it was because it was like her. It wasn't a publicized thing. It was literally her like private oh, okay okay home. right not one and, of those ones uh, you see on itv or something that was sort of the no, queen's 90th this was just for her just for her and uh it was cool because they uh invite all of the staff that they have to to watch the show as well so it's like 80 family members all having the dinner and then the whole staff from windsor castle they have in there to watch the show as well and so it was it was neat it was mind-blowing it was one of those things where like I'm standing there getting ready to do it and you see all of the Royal family and I'm going, how did this transpire in my life? Like, you know what I mean? I just a guy that loved to do magic. And then now all of a sudden I'm in Windsor castle, like so mind blowing. How did they react to it? Did you, did you talk to them afterwards? They come up and yeah, see Yeah, So we got to do, and that was the other thing. So we got to do the, the, the lineup where you stand there and meet them all. Mm -hmm. And I knew in my head that there's some sort of protocol, right? And nobody told me what it was. So we're no, they never tell you. Thing. I'm yeah. asking the person, like the, the Windsor Castle staff coordinator person, I'm like, what, what do I do? Cause I don't want to be rude or I don't like, and he gives me this whole list of like, you don't stick your hand out until they, until they go to reach your hand. Everybody is your majesty, except the queen. She's your Royal Highness. And you, and I was like, Oh my God, I'm not gonna remember any of this. this is that's so tougher awesome. than your, that's tougher than your illusion. Exactly. And then, uh, so I got to meet them all. 
And then uh, the last one to come through was Prince Harry. Zero protocol at all. He walked up and was like, dude, I saw your videos from Friends Got Talent. So crazy, man. Uh, he was just like such a normal, cool guy that I was like, it was, that was one of the highlights for me. Like you meet all of them, but then Prince Harry comes through. Forget the protocol. It was very like, bro, kind of vibe. So it was that's uh, great. Yeah, it was awesome. Because uh, he gets a bit of a rough ride sometimes. I mean, I, I obviously being with the media, he's a little grumpier with us, but I'm glad. I've always suspected that he's a much more laid back guy when, it, when he doesn't have a camera around. <laughs> so oh, he like... was so nice. And we just, we chatted for like five minutes. And then uh, what did he say at the end? He, at the end, he goes, hey, Darcy, don't trash the place tonight, all right? And then he like walked off and I was like, oh, what a guy. What a guy. I have nothing but good things to say about him and my interaction with him. I want to tell you a true story. And it's something that I think about every day. It's about two kids who grew up together. One was a bit older than the other. The older of the two was the alpha. He was larger than life, spontaneous, with a magnetic personality. The younger was a bit more shy, awkward, a little insecure, yet wildly ambitious. They were so different in so many ways that you would never expect the two to be best friends. However, as time went on, the eldest began living fast, while the younger remained focused. The two had similar dreams, yet chose different paths. And suddenly, tragedy struck, and the youngest was alone. Darcy Oak, magician and illusionist, is with us this half hour. Um, he's about to perform some shows at the uh, Flato Markham Theatre uh, coming up at the end of the month, February 29th through March the 3rd. That's from Thursday to Sunday. Two shows on both Saturday and Sunday, if you want to have a look for tickets there. Darcy, I was always obviously interested in, in how people get their starts and stuff. And I didn't realize you mentioned that it was your dad. And of course, I think people know Scott Oak, for anyone who's watched uh, hockey over the years, uh, that he, it was a magic trick, that, that something that he did that sort of sparked your interest in magic. Yeah, it's funny. And we tell the story in the show and people ask me all the time, like, is that a true story? And, and this is completely how it went. So I was sitting around at home, six, seven years old, and my mom used to play bridge with all of her friends. So there was a deck of cards sitting there and my dad just picks them up and he's messing around with them. He goes, Darcy, pick a card. And he knows, no, like, doesn't know a single magic trick, nothing, right? So I was kind of like, okay. And I pick one and I look at it. I put it back inside the deck and he mixes them up and he goes, Darcy, and he's playing it up, right? Like he's yeah. Mr. Magician. And he goes, uh, I'm going to reach in the pack and I'm going to find your card. And so he closes his eyes, spreads all the cards out, face down on the table, reaches in, pulls one out, flips it over. Boom. It was my card. What? And I, yeah. And I was blown away. I had no idea how to explain what he did. Like, and it was just mind boggling to me. He tortured me for a month. Wouldn't tell me how he did it. And then literally five weeks later, I found out it was a total accident. That yeah. was, it was a random fluke. Scott, random. Oak, Scott Oak is not a magician. Not at all. And he just went, boom, here it is. And it was my card. And he played it off like he meant to do it. But it was that feeling that resonated with me of being fooled and not being able to explain what I saw. And then, you know, it's crazy to think back on, like, what if that, what if it didn't work out? Like, like what if he, he, what if he didn't find the card? And the fact that it was a random fluke, a one in 52 chance that worked out and then literally changed the course of my entire life. That that is magical. You might be in my shoes if that hadn't have happened. You know, if you got the wrong <laughs> card, you might be in broadcast. You're followed in his footsteps. Hey, you never uh, know. I know that you, you and your dad and and your family and and my condolences on the passing of your mom too. I think is is that you've been working uh, well to to work in memory of your brother who who passed away, and you've been working to try to memorialize and work in his memory. And you've done a lot of work. And there's a, a Bruce Oak Recovery Center in in Winnipeg now that is dedicated to him. That must be very meaningful to you. 
Yeah, so essentially uh, would be, what, I think 11 years ago now. He uh, passed away from a drug overdose. And that's a thing you hear about a lot, you know. And I know when he was in his active addiction stage, there's no blueprint for it. And we had, as a family, no idea, like, even where to start. And so when he passed away, we spent a substantial amount of years raising money to open up the Bruce Oak Recovery Center in Winnipeg. And essentially the, uh, the cornerstone of the whole thing is that if you, you, if you can't afford it, you don't have to pay. Nobody's turned away because of their financial status or anything like that. And yeah, it's, uh, it's running like a well-oiled machine, um, which is great. There's been over, I think, 100 graduates now. Um, and there's all these statistics of like for every year, uh, someone in active addiction stays clean, the amount that it actually saves the taxpayer and, and all of that. I don't know quite like my dad can rifle off those statistics, no right. problem. But just, just the, the change and, and the things that it's done to the community and to the city and like the, there's, a, there's a wait list for it. And now we're currently working on the Anoak Recovery Center in memory of my mom, mm-hmm. um, which will be a female only uh, recovery center because there's a, there's a, a lot of difference in uh, treating men and women in active addiction. So yeah, that's, that's where we're at now. So the Bruce Oak Recovery Center has been up and running for several years and it's, uh, it's, it's literally saving lives, which is unbelievable. Yeah, and especially considering how much we talk about addiction issues and the opioid crisis and so on and how this came sort of predated that and yet so necessary, such a necessary service these days as well. And that's what we always say too. Like we, we, we need 50 more of these types of things, you know, like the opioid, opioid crisis is, you know, rampant. So it's, uh, we're, work, we're working away. Yeah. Well, Darcy, listen, best of luck with your shows in Markham coming up at the end of the month. Uh, thanks for sharing those great stories about Windsor Castle. I'll always remember seeing you on Britain's Got Talent because, of course, Canadians love to watch other Canadians succeed, especially in a place like Britain where they can be they can be a little edgy about Canadians sometimes. So I'm glad we uh, I'm glad you showed them showed them what we could do. And thanks for your time. Thank you so much. Great talking to you. 